Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, the National Council for History Education will be holding their annual conference in St. Augustine. We have teachers usually from, you know, 40-plus states that will show up at our conferences. We'll discuss a 1605 book about the Hernando de Soto expedition. He traveled back to Spain in the mid-1530s and was given permission uh, in a governorship to conquer the lands of what they then referred to as La Florida. And we'll talk about the early citrus industry in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Cooking the lunch room ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books Keep it the teacher, don't know I mean she looks The National Council for History Education is holding their annual conference in St. Augustine, March 19th through 21st. The city is celebrating 450 years as the oldest European settlement in what is now the United States. Laura Wakefield is vice chair of the NCHE and explains that this is an important anniversary for her organization as well. NCHE is an organization that was formed in 1990. We're actually celebrating our 25th anniversary at this conference, so we're excited about that. But the the organization was formed out of the Bradley Commission on History and the Teaching of History in the Schools in the 1980s. And there was a concern that history students weren't getting enough history and that the history wasn't being told by teachers who had a lot of experience and knowledge about history. And so out of that commission, there was a need, felt that there was a need to have an organization that was directly um, directed toward history education and history teachers and how to help them with professional development, also to help them uh, through the annual conference is a wonderful way for teachers to get together and learn from history professionals, academic scholars, museums, and to kind of wed those three separate, in a sense, groups together into one. And so that's really what NCHE is all about, is serving history teachers. From 2001 through 2013, the National Council for History Education administered Teaching American History grants, which funded some outstanding professional development programs. In counties throughout Florida, the grants funded summer field trips, seminars, workshops, online courses, and websites to help teachers develop and implement classroom strategies to benefit their students. Yes, we did, and and what a wonderful experience that was. We we had um, one of the things that NCHE initially did as an organization was to to develop the colloquium model, and the colloquium model is that when you do a professional development with teachers, that it isn't just a 
um, you know, an expert sage on the stage talking and telling them this is here's all this deep content, but that you get a group together that consists of an academic historian who can provide that deep content, an education specialist who might be someone from a museum or a historical organization or an education department at a university, and that person can provide sort of the educational background and, and the pedagogy. And then you have a history master teacher who is an actual classroom teacher who has experienced uh, with teaching in a classroom, knows where the teachers are coming from. And the three of them get together with that school or that district that has, the, in, in the case of the Teaching American History grants, those districts had those grants. They would get together with them and find out what were the particular needs of that district. And then the, the three of them would design a program just for them. Although the Teaching American History grant program yielded outstanding results in Florida and other states throughout the nation, funding for the program was cut. Laura Wakefield. Well, sadly, um, they they went the way of the congressional budget (laughs) process, but um, NCHE still does do professional development. We are uh, always uh, partnering with other. We've done some partnerships with the National Park Service, and some school districts that do have professional development money um, are still able to bring us in. But really, mostly how we provide professional development now is through our annual conference, which is going to be here in Florida. So great opportunity. The 2015 National Council for History Education Conference features a wide range of sessions for teachers with topics such as making connections to local history, encountering America, immigrant narratives as historical documents, and teaching the Cold War, what we knew then and what we know now. Many of the sessions provide models for teachers to adapt to their own classrooms. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, most, many of the sessions are taught by teachers from around the country who have a model lesson that, that has worked for them. And so you're actually hearing from somebody who's done it, who's seen it work with students. But you also have uh, organizations, as I mentioned, some of the museums. You have Colonial Williamsburg that will be there, the National Archives representatives, and education departments from many museums around the country are going to be there to present. So it gives teachers an opportunity to connect with some of those organizations and provide and get resources that they might not have access to where they live and to see ideas about how other teachers are doing things and then they can tweak it and make it their own. Laura Wakefield, who teaches at the Florida Virtual School, will be facilitating a session called Bringing History to Life with Dramatic Interpretations. What's really exciting about that is that that is um, going to be presented by two teachers from Osceola County and that's where I'm from, and uh, those two teachers got started with a Teaching American History grant and uh, have grown and developed, and and one of them, in fact, is now working on her doctorate at UCF and so uh, in history and history education. So I think it's exciting when you have teachers that have taken something that they're passionate about. One of them has done all kinds of reenactments with Civil War uh, reenactments and has all the costumes and materials, and then they're showing teachers how they can do it even on a small scale if they're not somebody who's super dramatic, but they know how to, they can give them the tips and the ideas on how to make history really come to life. Many of the sessions at the NCHE conference will highlight projects that address common core standards. Yes, they do. And and I think that's something that's really important now, because especially because with Common Core, history is not named in Common Core. It's it's within the reading uh, section of Common Core. And so for some people, they may feel like history is shortchanged. But I think if teachers know how to um, utilize the, the Common Core standards and, and develop the historical content through those co- standards, that really helps them.
as teachers. In addition to multiple sessions on a variety of topics, the NCHE conference will feature several keynote speakers, including Joanne Freeman. Joanne Freeman is um, a phenomenal historian. She's very, uh, very engaging and, and interesting. She's received a lot of awards, uh, I think, from the OAH as the Outstanding Young Historians. And she is just real dynamic. And um, she's an early American historian who has really focused on the politics of the of the early American period. And so she's going to be doing a, a special keynote on George Washington and the particular difficulties that he faced as being the first president in developing our nation. And, and so I'm excited to hear it myself because every time I've heard her, she's fantastic. Noted Florida historian J. Michael Francis will discuss Spanish colonial history at the conference. The Florida Humanities Council has been one of our partners with this conference, and they've sponsored him to be our one of our keynotes. And we're just really excited because I've heard, if you've never heard him, he, he also is a really engaging speaker. And one of the nice things about him is he's really uh, gotten to know a lot of teachers in the state through some of the workshops that the Florida Humanities Council has done and also through uh, the NCHE. And so I think that uh, when teachers really realize how much the depth of history that we have in Florida with uh, going back to the Spanish colonial period and, and even before that, um, that he's he's really researched a lot of things related to the Native Americans and and um, the early uprisings and things that took place during the mission period. So I'm I'm excited to hear that as well. Broadcast journalist and author Koki Roberts will provide a keynote address called "The Second Half of History." Koki Roberts is um, just a phenomenal. Um, speaker. She's also so well-respected um, all over the world for some of the work that she's done. And she um, is, a, is a historian herself. She wrote the book um, Founding Mothers. And uh, she's also a member of our board on the NCHE. And so we really feel special that she's going to be able to come down and, and speak and let some of the teachers get to hear her firsthand. While in St. Augustine, history teachers at the conference will participate in excursions ranging from kayaking to tours of historic sites to pub tours. Laura Wakefield. These are all wonderful opportunities for teachers who, especially, I think there'll be a lot of teachers from around the country who are thrilled to get these. But I think for a lot of Florida teachers, they tend to go to St. Augustine, maybe go to the gift shops, maybe go to the Castillo, but they may not have had an opportunity to really learn, for example, about the architecture of St. Augustine with one of the noted University of Florida Professor Emeritus, um, Herschel Shepard's going to be doing that tour. We have um, a professor from Flagler College, uh, Michael Butler, who'll be doing a tour on the civil rights movement in St. Augustine and really take teachers into the Lincolnville area and talk about all the amazing things that happened during that period of time in, in St. Augustine. And uh, we've got the the um, Lighthouse Museum is doing uh, an in-depth, their education department is working with teachers to show them a lot of things that they can do about lighthouses. And then even the Castillo Tour, uh, the National Park Service is doing an extensive um, activity with the teachers. They're actually told to kind of prepare to get muddy and, and dirty because they're going to be working with coquina and different things that, that have to do with the Castillo. So I, I and, and then we've got some behind-the-scenes tours of Ponce, um, the old Ponce Hotel, which is now Flagler College, which is an incredible Gilded Age uh, feature of St. Augustine. And I just, I think the teachers are going to be ecstatic about the opportunities to really go in depth and, and experience history firsthand. Teachers from across the country will join teachers from Florida in St. Augustine for some enriching professional development opportunities at the conference.
Generally, what happens at our conferences is that we do have a majority of the teachers from whatever area, because obviously it's easier to get to. And so I'm hoping that we're going to have a lot more Florida teachers will come than uh, so far I've signed up, but we have quite a few that are going to be there. But then we have teachers usually from, you know, 40 plus states that'll show up at our conferences. And many of them are are repeat uh, attendees because they've they've experienced that collegiality and the collaboration and the exciting um, offerings that are at our conference and, and want to come back. I know as a teacher myself, going to these conferences for years, it was kind of like my, my fix every year to help me get rejuvenated and excited about teaching again in my classroom and to bring back ideas on how to teach to my students. The National Council for History Education 2015 Conference will be held in St. Augustine March 19th through 21st. Registration information is online at nche.net slash conference. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, purchase great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today you have here a book published in 1605 about the Hernando de Soto Expedition. Yeah, that's right. And the Hernando de Soto Expedition of 1539 is probably probably one of the more uh, well-known and uh, interesting of the 16th century Spanish uh, 
conquest into the southeastern United States of uh, what the Spanish at the time called La Florida that covered all of, of, of what was then known about the uh, uh, the continent of North America. And DeSoto is, a, is an interesting character. Uh, he gained some notoriety uh, serving with uh, Pizarro in the Central and South American campaigns. He had spent some time in Peru uh, and became known for his somewhat brutal tactics uh, when dealing with the native populations in Central and South America. He traveled back to Spain in the mid-1530s and was given permission uh, in a governorship to conquer the lands of what they then referred to as La Florida. Uh, now, there were a few expeditions prior to that, and uh, we've talked about it in, in previous programs, the Ponce de Leon expeditions and uh, Ion and uh, Navaez that uh, ultimately failed. Uh, but DeSoto brought with him a number of ships, almost 700 men, uh, who were uh, intent on establishing a colony in, uh, in La Florida. And in May of 1539, they landed uh, somewhere near present-day Tampa Bay, uh, maybe a little bit further south. Uh, some scholars disagree about the exact location. Um, but what's different about other expeditions is that they immediately started heading into the interior of Florida. In fact, actually headed north. There's an archaeological site that was discovered in the 1980s near present-day Tallahassee uh, that confirms an encampment uh, for the uh, that they date back to the DeSoto expedition. So we know that he came through uh, part of north-central Florida and eventually traversed uh, a few thousand miles throughout the southeastern U.S. They went as far north as uh, Tennessee. They then went west uh, across the Mississippi River, uh, were at, at some point in, in present-day Arkansas, down south into uh, Texas. And along the way, they were the first Europeans to encounter a lot of these uh, native peoples who had never seen a European before. So here they are in the deep interior part of, of North America, uh, exchanging, uh, uh, you know, th this, this cultural exchange between the, the native peoples. Uh, and then eventually, uh, of course, that information was brought back to, to Spain. Um, now, unfortunately, the expedition did not uh, succeed. They weren't able to establish a, a colony. A lot of that uh, had to do with their initial relationship with a lot of the uh, the native peoples here. They were uh, intent on on colonizing and and conquering the people. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, dialogue and, and uh, amicable discourse. Uh, DeSoto contracted some sort of disease. He died uh, sometime in in uh, 1542. Actually, in about May of 1542, his uh, burial uh, plot is somewhere on the western edge of the Mississippi River. The few survivors, which at that time numbered between uh, 300 and 350, decided to abandon the expedition, headed back down the Mississippi River, eventually made it to a, a Spanish colony in Mexico uh, in late 1542, uh, early uh, 43, and essentially abandoned that, that expedition. Well, this is really a fascinating story, and, and the man who wrote this 1605 account of Hernando de Soto's expedition, Garcilaso de la Vega, has an interesting story of his own. Yeah, that's right. De La Vega, uh, known later in his life as La Inca, uh, the Inca, was actually uh, uh, unique, uh, culturally unique. He was the uh, son of a Spanish captain and an Incan uh, princess, so he was descended from uh, these uh, noble uh, families from both the European culture and the uh, native Amerindian culture in uh, present-day Peru. Uh, now, he lived uh, for most of the first part of his life, for about 20 years, in Peru. He grew up there. He listened to a lot of oral traditions. He learned the culture, uh, learned the Quechua language, was proficient in their language, and then at the age of 20 or 21, traveled 
to Spain, learned Spanish, learned Italian, learned to read and write the Spanish language. And he lived in this um, strange sort of nexus environment in between these two cultures. Uh, although he never traveled back to Peru, he still had this connection with the uh, the Amerindian culture. Uh, and uh, De La Vega is famous for, for writing a few accounts, one of the, the history of his people in Peru, but he also wrote this book, the one that we're looking at today that was published in 1605, and it's entitled uh, La Florida del Inca. Uh, and it is a chronicle of that Hernando de Soto expedition. Now, uh, de la Vega was born in 1539, so he was born the year that uh, de Soto landed in La Florida. So he never knew de Soto, but uh, while living in Peru, he was able to interview a gentleman who was along uh, with de Soto during that expedition in 1539. And through that oral history account, he was able to piece together from some historical documents as well, he was able to piece together what this expedition was like. So what we get is the final product, the 1605 uh, narrative of the Hernando de Soto uh, expedition. And what's fascinating is that, you know, most historians will discount the historical accuracy. A lot of the place names are, are off and the timeline is very different. Uh, but De La Vega writes in, in the classic uh, Renaissance style. It's, it's beautifully written. Uh, it's very succinct and clear and to the point. And it's uh, famous even today as a, uh, as a, a great early, uh, late 16th, early 17th century account of what the interaction was like between these first Europeans and the native peoples that lived in the uh, southeastern uh, part of North America. And having that background, you know, having uh, this, this uh, what they refer as, to as mestizo or this mixed race background, he brings uh, to his writing this uh, sensibility uh, for the Amerindian uh, perspective that was not present in a lot of other uh, contemporary writings. So, you know, in that regard, this is a, a unique work. And, and again, it's, it's been translated a number of times in, in a number of different languages. But what we have today uh, that we're looking at here in the archive is an original uh, Spanish language first edition copy of that narrative. And we're almost out of time, but but this particular book was donated to the Florida Historical Society Library of Florida History by an important historical figure. Yeah, that's right. The story just keeps getting better. Uh, when the Florida Historical Society reincorporated in 1905 and they formed a, a research library, the first donation to the library was this book, Florida del Inca, and it was owned by none other than Henry Flagler, the railroad magnate who is uh, famous for building the Florida East Coast Railroad and developing Florida's infrastructure. This was his personal copy that he donated to the Florida Historical Society uh, over a century ago. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. Along with tourism and the cattle industry, the citrus industry is most closely associated with Florida. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at the early citrus industry in Florida. The, the market for fresh citrus developed up north, right? That market really didn't exist. It had to be invented for the most part because access to citrus in the northeast uh, had come previously from Spain and it was a very long way away in terms of shipping time and so it was a very minimal market. So as the market develops for fresh fruit, 
uh, what becomes imperative is the way the fruit looks more than anything else. Right? It has to be something that someone would pick up in the same way we walk into a grocery store now and, and choose our fruit and our vegetables. That was Dr. Mark Long from the University of Central Florida telling me about the development of the early citrus market economy in Florida in the mid to late 19th century. Here, Dr. Long explains the advent of packing and shipping to the early citrus industry. What develops, of course, is a sort of nexus of these packers who are not rowers themselves. They become the sort of middlemen. And the buyers would come typically from up north, down, uh, representing the sort of the, the moneyed interests that own the, the packing um, industry and the shipping industries. They would come down and buy crops from farmers on the tree before they're even picked uh, and give a, a, a set price for the, for the crop. And then the, the citrus grower himself would step back, right? So then the, the, the seller of the fruit uh, would then pick the fruit and take it to the packing house and then ship it north. With the rise of the industry, the system of packing improved. Packing became central to preserving profits. So early on, they're packed in barrels with sawdust. Uh, it was a horrible way to ship oranges. Um, the spoilage rate was incredibly high. and so they, they come up with a better packing system for that, and that is they, they instead of barrels with sawdust, they move eventually to boxes uh, and boxes with paper. And so they would line or they would wrap each individual orange in a piece of uh, a fine piece of paper to try and preserve the skin of the orange and then pack them into crates. So it becomes uh, a significant bottleneck in terms of both time and cost, right? It's labor intensive uh, and it's time intensive. Uh, but what it does do is preserve the orange in root, which is really um, most important. Because of the tenuous nature of weather and early transportation networks, citrus was only a niche market until World War II. Dr. Gary Mormino, professor emeritus at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, tells us about what changed after the war to grow the citrus industry. The problem with the citrus industry had always been spoilage or imperfect fruit. In a, in a market where people bought whole fruit, canned fruit juice had never proved very popular. It always tasted tinny or metallic. Uh, dehydrated juice tasted like uh, aspirin and water, the British said. And now the solution is found uh, in World War II, frozen concentrate, perfected in uh, laboratories uh, on uh, Paramore Road in, in Orlando and in little facilities such as Dunedin, Florida. It coincides, that techno technology coincided with some economic trends that, that had begun even before the war that big grove owners gobbled up the little grove owners. Homeowners, American consumers now had freezers or freezer compartments. Prior to the World War II, frozen juice wouldn't have made any sense. Many grocers didn't have freezers and certainly homeowners didn't have this. It also coincides with the baby boom after World War II. Mothers didn't have time to squeeze the juice. So Florida orange juice is the rage, and you have this tremendous investment. And by the 50s, for the most part, you know, the majority of the groves are dominated by about a half a dozen firms. Dr. Mormino tells us about the impact these new markets had on the orange crops in Florida. Uh, there's another consequence of this, prior to World War II, grove owners tended to plant a, a wonderful variety of oranges. So they would all come to uh, harvest at a different time. So they could sell to tourists and, and to consumers in November through March or April. When's the last time you saw a Parson Brown or a 
these obscure oranges. Well, with frozen concentrate, they they tend to 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 use only two types of oranges, uh, Valencia's and pineapple oranges. And consequently, the the groves that are largely now selling to the big uh, frozen concentrate plants transform their groves into pineapple orange groves and Valencia orange groves. That was Dr. Mark Long and Dr. Gary Mormino. I interviewed them both and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Participate in the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.